0: Welcome to The Drunken Odyssey with John King, a podcast about the writing life. Tell us, oh muse, about a man whose mind and career has careened far and wide and upside down, whose computers are seared with crimes against grammar, whose typographical aggressions are legion, whose words flow into the very A man who actually owns a typewriter, and perhaps even a soul. And now, your host, John King.
1: Welcome to episode 614 of the world's greatest creative writing podcast. On today's show, I'm proud to present two interviews conducted by Samantha Nickerson for the fiction writers, Celeste Ng and Ben Fountain, dating back to Miami book fair of 2023 last November. So me personally, I've been struggling to climb back up onto the right side of basic general health, you know, trying to take care of the day job. And I've managed to get a little bit of writing done, including the beginning of another confession of Guy Psycho, tapped out on my Royal Futura 800 typewriter, which somehow tricked my faulty attention span from completely shorting out. I'm sorry, what were we talking about? I have found it really difficult to concentrate. For a while, I could account for that because, you know, I was struggling to breathe. And this long recovery process is the chief reason why my poetry reading tour of Central Florida in Buzo Veritas is skipping the month of February. Unless something extraordinary happens. The next planned event I have will be taking place at the Kerouac Project of Orlando here in the city beautiful on March 15th. Where are the Ides of March? I will be reading seven poems, and performing special guest Chrissy Kalea will be reading poetry as well. And then that brief reading will be followed by a book club discussion of Kenneth Patchen's postmodern masterpiece, *Memoirs of a Shy Pornographer*. Kenneth Patchen was adjacent to the Beat Generation writers, and he recorded an album in which he and Lawrence Ferlinghetti performed jazz poetry. Anyway, his novel, Memoirs of a Shy Pornographer, doesn't actually have any pornography in it. My apologies to anyone who got over enthused for a second. So if you would like to visit the house where Jack Kerouac wrote the first draft of The Dharma Bums, or you know you just want to hear me and Nick Gergadu and I discuss a remarkably obscure, remarkably surprising, remarkably beautiful novel. March 15th at 6:30 p.m. is the info and there's more info about that in this week's show notes. Let's get to the interviews.
0: And now, the interview of the day.
2: Welcome to the Drunken Odyssey, listeners. This is Samantha Nickerson coming to you from the Miami Book Fair. I'm here today with Celeste Ng, author of Our Missing Hearts. Welcome, Celeste. Thank you. It's great to have you.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: So your book, Our Missing Hearts, is about Noah, or Bird, a 12-year-old boy whose mother has left the family. It's been a few years, three years, I think, since, and he's lost memories, and the society that they live in is encouraging him to kind of forget about his mother seemingly for the greater good but of course that doesn't go down easy. The inciting incident is he receives this mysterious letter from his mother and he's trying to decode it figure out what this could mean and it sends him on a search for her. During the search he learns a lot about how their society works and the people within it and the whole story starts to unfold in this dystopian, I feel
3: like it's slightly in the future. I thought of it while writing as our world that's maybe like like two degrees off from reality. I heard somebody else say, well, I feel like this is America as it might be in about like 10 to 15 minutes. So we can, <laughs> we can probably talk some about, you know, how dystopian is the book. But yeah, it's, it's not quite our reality, but it's not very far off from our reality.
2: Right, it's totally possible. Um, I read the author's note and invoking Margaret Atwood, obviously, that's... Mm. She wrote nothing that people haven't already done to each other, uh, and I think that you've done the same here, and it's terrifying to see how close we are to that and know how quickly uh, our society really could just completely topple and how inclined we are to hate certain groups. So on that note, packed.
3: So can you summarize PACT for us? Sure. PACT is a series of laws in the book, uh, The America in Which Bird, our 12-year-old protagonist, lives. And it stands for Protecting American Culture and Traditions, which sounds like a great thing, but you can start thinking about ways in which that law might be applied in less positive ways. And so this law requires people to report anything that they see as un-American. It requires families to raise their children in sort of American and patriotic ways, and it allows the government to take away children if they feel that the environments they're in are unpatriotic or un-American. Yes, and that translates quite quickly and vehemently
2: to Asian hate and we see a lot of that in this book yeah the the pact culture is reminiscent of book bands and like drag story time bands. it feels very current and that's why it's so easy I think to imagine you said like two degrees off it feels very much like our world and in our world I think storytelling really holds a lot of power and that's a, a recurring theme throughout this book that there's power in the storytelling. Can we talk about the truth of that in the context of our present day sure.
3: society? Sure. Yeah, um, you know, in the years since this book first came out, it's now out on paperback, it's become more relevant, I think, to the world that we're living in. And I sort of hoped it would be the opposite. I'd sort of hoped that the world we were in would get better, but it feels like in a lot of ways it's getting more repressive. One of the things that I was thinking about while I was writing the novel, which I started way back in 2016, actually, so well before the Trump administration, well before COVID and a lot of the restrictions that we're starting to see now placed on libraries and schools, I was thinking about what it's like to raise a child in a world that you know is going to be hostile to them. Uh, In the novel, Bird is mixed race. His mother is a Chinese American woman and his father is a white American and because he's navigating a world that sees China as an enemy, that necessarily affects sort of how he goes through the world, how his parents want to try to protect him or prepare him for the world that's coming. And like you say, I think that's something that we're starting to see a lot now in terms of race, also in terms of religion, certainly, also in terms of gender identity, and a lot of restrictions on what's considered to be the, the right way or the real way to exist. You know, what makes you a real American versus not. Right. So hard to
2: define American when at its core it's an amalgamation. Yeah. And naturally that leads to conflict. I was fascinated by the boy who drew
3: cats, the story within the story. Is that real Japanese folklore or is that something that you created? That is a real story. I actually had a picture book of that or I remember reading a picture book of that from when I was a kid and I remember being very struck by it. Particularly there's a a scene, I won't spoil the story, but Mm -hmm. there's a there's a very dramatic moment in the story and that picture made a strong impression on me. And When I started writing this book, that story came to mind because it is in a lot of ways about the power of storytelling, the power of art to create real change in the world. And I I knew I wanted to work that story in. And I started going and looking on, you know, used book sites and things like that, trying to find the copy that I remembered as a kid. And I couldn't find it. I found lots of other versions of it. It's, It's a real story that's been retold over the years in various different forms. And I asked my sister, you know, do you remember this story? And she's like, yeah, I kind of remember it. I don't know exactly what you're talking about. And I asked my mother and she said, I have no clue what you're (laughs) talking about (laughs) at all. And so it was an interesting exercise in thinking about how this story that had been so important to me, they had forgotten about. And then when I found different versions and compared them, all those versions were a little bit different. They told the story differently. And the way I remembered it was different, too. And that idea that a story kind of shapeshifts and that you take from it sort of what resonates with you and your idea of what it is changes over time depending on who you are, that became part of the book as well. The, the story is a message to Bird from his mother, but it starts to take on all kinds of other meanings for him too. Mm-hmm. I really loved when he finally
2: remembers, like the memory is triggered and we get the story as Bird remembers Margaret, his mother, mm-hmm. telling it. It was so beautiful. I just, I read it over and over.
3: Oh, that makes me happy because I I think that's one of the things that I love about books. I read a lot, but I also reread a lot. And when I was a kid, I was constantly rereading my favorite books. And I think every time I read them, I did see them a little bit differently. They spoke to me differently. And that's what I find now as an adult when I reread books that I loved as a kid or stories that I had heard as a kid. Different parts stand out. And I think that's one of the magical things about stories in general. Like, What's changed? The words haven't changed. They're the same words that were there. You've changed. Mm-hmm. And so the meaning of the story changes. And so that moment where a bird kind of unlocks this memory of his mother and he finally remembers what she's trying to say through this story, in a way it's sort of that story shifting to meet him where he is. And that's one of the themes of the book is sort of, the ways that stories can kind of hold the past for us and kind of reopen them for us when we need it.
2: Mm -hmm. Stories within this story are like the vehicle for the action. Yes. They're very inspiring to the characters and very much like the incentive for change is telling these people's stories without giving too much away. Yes. But that being said, I thought that the conclusion of the story, what Bird decided to then go do was so poetic and perfect. It was just all tied up and yeah I loved
3: it (laughs) yeah we won't we won't get too much away but it's I can't but it is I mean one of the big questions that I realized I was wrestling with while I was writing the book was what what's the point of art basically you know at its at its core that was the question that I realized I was turning over and part of it was because I I told you I started writing the book in 2016 and I actually put it away I didn't know how to write it I wasn't sure if I wanted to write it I thought I was going to write a different book and then when the pandemic started and we were all kind of isolated and alone and you know if you think back like we were all like we, we were like washing our mail because like, we didn't know <laughs> yeah. what we didn't know what was what we should be afraid of everything was a threat right I was feeling really useless at the time because I was seeing you know in the news doctors who are literally working to save people's lives and I was seeing first responders going out and treating people and scientists you know working on trying to find a cure trying to find a vaccine and I was there in my office like with my laptop making up stories and I was feeling incredibly guilty and actually every, every writer that I knew was feeling something similar. I was like I should be doing something more useful. What's the point of what I do?
2: You know what? You can think like that but also stories, media, books and movies were one of the only things that brought people joy during that time and that's that work is just as important as physical health.
4: I'm glad
3: you said that That was the conclusion that I finally started to come to because I realized that what was getting me through every day was listening to my favorite music or diving into my favorite books. I will not say that everything that I consumed during the, the the you know those days of the pandemic was was art. My son got me watching this show called "Is It Cake," which, I love it, <laughs> which is exactly what it sounds like. It they they make objects and then people have to guess whether it's real or it's cake. You know, so we can discuss whether that's art or not. But again, that idea that art in some ways can be an escape. It can be a way to help you process things. I started reading a poem every morning just to like help me get through the day. And one poem that I encountered was literally a poet writing in the 60s and saying how she was having trouble writing because the news was so bad Mm -hmm. and what got her to her desk and to write poems, including the one that she, you know, that, that I was reading was that idea, like you say, that it's it's a message sort of to the future that it could be a way to spark something in someone else to encourage them to take an action or just to make them feel like they're less alone. And so those questions were very much on my mind as I started to write the book. And so that idea of, you know, what's the point of the story? Can it do anything? Can telling people stories do anything? Is it important to save people's stories? All of those, I think, were really wrapped up in that same question of like, no, I think art is important. It can do a lot of things for us. And holding onto those stories and sharing those stories really is important
2: absolutely is and going beyond bird decoding that initial letter and th- there's graffiti popping up over the town where they live and quickly being shut down it becomes a crime scene it's something to be hidden covered up instantly overnight it's gone but all of this graffiti is invoking thoughts of his mother and that art kind of sets Bird down this path as well. It's all these things happening at once. And he's, what's the meaning of this? What does this red heart mean? (laughs) The string, oh, that one was crazy. The... Yeah, Between the strings, the, piece, the like strings.
3: Yeah, um, I took inspiration from for that from, it's kind of called like guerrilla art sometimes. Mm-hmm. I it's think sometimes, it's even said yeah, in the book. Yeah, it, sometimes it's called yarn bombing. But the idea essentially that sort of a piece of art will appear, you know, it's not official, it's not sanctioned, nobody planned to put it there, but the artist will put it in there and then people will sort of encounter it. And it that could be anything. But a lot of times it's, it's often women in particular who, who do this kind of art, and the idea of yarn bombing is that you know maybe you walk through the park one day and suddenly the tree is all covered in like knitting right and it kind of it makes you stop and think it makes you question things and depending on what object has been covered it it may make you sort of question certain ideas about what our society values and so on and that idea that art you might not expect it the idea that you might come across that kind of art and it might surprise you and in some ways then it it moves past your rational mind and it hits you in the emotions and you have to process it. That unexpectedness of it, I think, is part of its power.
2: I think so, too. And we saw this. It's explored during, you know, the end. The, I won't give anything away. But you see people who normally would just head down, mind your business, stop and be together and hear a story and cry and then, you know, carry on with their lives after that. But the moment is what's important. The moment is what they will remember. It's like a, where were you during 9-11? Like, that's something that is momentous. And the fact that art can do that and anybody can create art is very empowering.
3: It is. It's, I mean, it's that idea of art as a shared experience, right? If we've been talking earlier about art as sort of being very individual and what what it means to you at the moment you are in your life. But art also is something that does bring people together. I mean, you think that's why, you know, people still want to go hear concerts. That's why, you know, thousands of people paid lots of money to go and hear Taylor Swift. You could listen to her album, but there is something about being in the space where she's performing where the art is being created right that's why people still want to go to the theater mm-hmm. because there's something about seeing it unfold live and just being in that space with other people that i think it's really a sense of community even if it's just for a moment and that's that's part of what i realized i was thinking about in the book too is how do you find ways to find your community and not feel like you're alone and isolated right i think with
2: a group viewing of art we also look to the reactions of others to further the experience and gain more insight i personally did go to the taylor swift concert with my you're lucky (laughs) yeah yeah the littlest one like idolizes her. Have you ever done a PowerPoint party? Have you seen those? No. What is that? Exactly what it sounds like. You get your friends together and you all make a PowerPoint and you present them and maybe you drink.
3: That is adorable. Like kind of like it's adorably nerdy and also really fun.
2: (laughs) Very fun. My youngest sister at the time, she was 11. She did her PowerPoint on, it was very convincing thesis on how Taylor Swift fans are a cult. And she i don't think she was wrong it's not like a violent cult it's a very loving like feminist cult but it, yeah definitely the art inspires that this the shared experience and the words that resonate with people and you can relate to it at any time in your life and apply meaning to those words in your yeah. own life
3: and there's a spirit of camaraderie in that whatever it is right whether it's Taylor Swift whether it's I don't know you're an Elvis fan whatever it is when you find that moment of connection you have something to talk about mm-hmm. right and you have sort of a shared experience that you can then build on from there right whatever it is you, you know if you're at a train station or at the airport and you strike up a conversation with a stranger you're looking for things that you have in common and if you both have read the same book or it turns out that you're both you know Taylor Swift fans or you both I don't know loved Hamilton whatever it whatever it is it it doesn't it almost doesn't matter but it's a moment of kinship mm-hmm. where you can find something between you doesn't mean you'll be friends with them necessarily but it's a moment in which you're like we exist in the same world and there is something out there that both of us have experienced and that we we can share with each other and that feels really important especially in a world that's that's kind of increasingly isolating
2: the irony is that travel has furthered that you can travel further from your community and you can stay wherever you want and meeting a stranger in the airport you know you might end end the conversation that you've just had a lovely conversation maybe the best one you've
3: had all year with okay have a nice life Mm -hmm. and you'll never see them again and there's something sort of beautiful about that and also something sort of sad about that in a way Mm -hmm. I think a similar thing happens with the internet that you can find your community, right? Um, So when I was in high school, the internet was like not yet a thing. And then towards the end, it finally started to actually be a thing. And there is this wonderful sense that whatever your weird interest was, you could find people who are interested in it. You know, you love this weird, obscure band. You can now find someone else who also loves that weird, obscure band. And that was a wonderful feeling in a lot of ways. And particularly for people who had been marginalized you know like if you were queer for example like suddenly being able to communicate with other people who felt the same way that you did is really important and really life-affirming but then the other thing is that in some ways that life becomes sort of where your energy is and the life around you doesn't feel as you don't feel as connected to the place that you're in and so it goes it goes both ways you know it, it's it's a tool for connecting and it can also be a tool for isolating
2: absolutely and steering the isolation and connection back to the story there is a passage on page 164 that i found really beautiful is it okay Mm
3: -hmm. would you like to read it uh sure this is a section where we're hearing about bird's mother margaret and the experience that she had before bird was born while she was in college the the united states was going through sort of a really difficult economic and social upheaval and um she makes friends with another student named domi And they managed to sort of find a way to get out and sort of, like, find a safe place together and and kind of band together. Domi had an ex who had a girlfriend who had a sister with a two-bed in Dumbo. Six of them squeezed into it now, the sister and her boyfriend in one room, the ex and his new girl in another, Domi on the couch, and Margaret in a sleeping bag on the living room floor, the room so small that when they held out their arms in the dark, their fingers intertwined. That last part, I was like... Oh man,
2: that's so deep. This, this, uh. <laughs>
3: but it's this sense of, in times where the world feels very big and very scary, a lot of times sort of like your small group, you know, if you can find even just one other person to kind of go through it with you together, it feels a little bit less scary. I mean, again, you know, this the the crisis, as they call it in the book, is not related to COVID, but it's hard not to think about COVID when we're, you know, thinking about that. And I'm thinking that sort of, again, during those early days of the pandemic, we would go out for a walk and we would just see our neighbors. You know, it was so heartening to just see them and like Mm -hmm. just have a little chat with them, like outside, you know, because we hadn't seen people in so long. That sense of you're not alone in the universe and there's somebody else out there who's also going through something similar to what you are, I feel like is so important.
2: Right, as mentally drinking as th- that isolation was, I think it even physically affected us, like the oxytocin rush, just from seeing your neighbor who on a normal day, you might be kind of pissed off at for
3: no reason, yeah like <laughs> right, or or you know it that's it. It was just like, oh, there's another person. Mm-hmm. um, it, it's a little bit like you know, if you are traveling somewhere really far away and you don't know anyone there, if you were to run into almost anyone that you knew even someone that you didn't have particularly strong feelings about there's this rush of connection with them You're like i know you i've seen you before how are you doing oh my god what are you doing here right there is again that sense because i think we're we're social creatures we don't want to be alone we want to find connections absolutely we do now
2: bird and sadie managed to create connection in this very isolated world they don't seem to have much in common as far as like life sadie's a foster child packed basically has mandated that if a parent seems like a threat to the child, that the child be removed, placed in foster care, Mm -hmm. but a threat could mean that the parent just disagrees with whatever the government is saying or doesn't practice American cultural traditions. And of course, defining America, as we said earlier is impossible. So these people live in fear of their children being taken. And Sadie is one of those kids and she's at Bird's school and that's how they meet And Sadie's kind of this, like, transgressive, like, I'm going to do what I want. I'm not going to just listen to them just because she was from a very loving home. Her parents Mm -hmm. took very good care of her. And suddenly she's placed into this foster family who refuses to even take care of her hair. It broke my heart. They're like, oh, we'll have to have your hair
3: relaxed. And she just... Shaves it all off, yeah, because she's she's mixed race and she has natural hair and they don't know what to do with it. And then, like, well, well, we'll just cut it off. Mm-hmm. right? That sense of like we're gonna take away your identity from you. yeah, it's it's really a moment, I think where she, Even though she and Bird don't have a lot in common, as you said, sort of at the beginning, one of the things that they have in common is that they know what it's like to be separated from someone in their family. And that's what bonds them together. It really is sort of, in my mind, again, not to give anything away, but a story about sort of finding your people and finding your found. I'll say that again. Found family? Finding your found family. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is more of a tongue twister than I expected. Um, but that sense of like, you know, there's your family and you have certain bonds with them, but then sometimes there are people that you have a different connection with and they end up being like family. And that's what Domi is to Margaret Bird's mother, and that's sort of what Sadie and Bird are to each other. They become their found family because there's a sense that you understand something about what I'm going through. Right
2: while Domi and Margaret and Bird and Sadie all kind of seek out what they need at the risk of ruining their own lives maybe like being imprisoned being killed (laughs) it's not quite clear what happens to people who make waves then there's Ethan steady Ethan Bird's father who holds the fort down and keeps everything running like regardless of his own emotions he's driven by duty but we find out later that truly he's driven by love Mm -hmm. can you talk about the choice to pair somebody as wild as margaret with somebody as steady as ethan
3: yeah it struck me that those two parents are sort of two sides of the same coin and it makes sense that because they come from such different backgrounds and because they are such different people that they would have really different approaches to parenting and to life in general. Ethan, who is a white American man, I think he feels a little bit more comfortable in the world than Margaret, who's a Chinese-American woman, does. And, you know, he he's, you know, he, because of who he is and the privilege that he has, he's not sort of constantly looking over his shoulder in the way that Margaret has learned to do. And so when it comes to parenting their child, who isn't, Exactly the same as either of them. Right. Bird is mixed race. And so he's got multiple heritages. It makes sense that Ethan might say to him, like, just don't rock the boat. Just try to blend in. Just try to do that. And it makes sense that Margaret, who has had an experience, um, you know, there's things that happen to her parents when she's younger. There's things that happen to her when she's older because of how people perceive her it makes sense that she might say, that's not an option for me. It's not an option for me to not rock the boat, right? It's not an option for me to be a nail that doesn't stick up. And their two approaches, I think, are sort of like the two poles of how, as a parent, I think about parenting my child just in general. Do I teach you to kind of make peace and kind of go along with things? Or do I teach you to sort of be, you know, like, stand out and be proud of who you are and you, you want both of those things mm-hmm. right you ultimately want your child to be safe but the the best route is not always clear right it's situational
2: and yeah children have to learn that people have to learn that bird has the realization that all kids have at some point in their life during adolescence or maybe even after that oh my parents are just people yes as flawed as any and wow what a moment What a realization for him to have in the midst of crisis. And he's kind of at that point just depending on himself, yet he's blind.
3: Yeah, it's really, I mean, a lot of it is a coming of age story for Bird. He's 12, which is the age for most of us that we kind of start tiptoeing towards adulthood. We want to be adults, but we don't actually know fully what that means. And a lot of times it is the moments where we start realizing like, oh, my parents are are people outside of just being my parents, mm-hmm. right? They have lives outside of me. And maybe they even had a life even before I was born. And maybe they don't know everything, which is sort of a startling realization but i think an important one that adolescents tend to have i think of it as as if you know they they thought the picture of their world was you know maybe a little three by five print and then they realized that actually there was all this other picture just outside of that little frame and they're recognizing sort of like what the wider world is like that there's other people out there who do things differently that there's all this history out there that they didn't know but that affects them and for bird having that realization is part of i think what allows him to go out and be on his own and kind of decide what he's gonna do in the world that he's in i think a really sweet moment of him
2: seeing the bigger picture is um when ethan finally sits down and opens up and teaches him a little bit of cantonese which bird didn't even know existed before that and for anybody listening who might want to read this book, you
3: will learn a little bit of Cantonese too. <laughs> it's like four little characters, but but a, but a start, right? It's a place like you say that. It, so Ethan is a linguist by training. He he's interested in languages and particularly etymology, sort of how words relate to each other. And Bird has only really known him as a shelver at the library. His father used to be a professor, and then when his mother left, his father was sort of downgraded, shifted into a different job, and is just sort of shelving and unshelving books. And that moment in which his father literally is sort of teaching him another language and sort of revealing to him that there's this whole other world of meanings behind the language that he thought that he knew. I think that's sort of emblematic of a moment of recognizing like, oh, there's actually a lot more out there that I don't know. It's like that old saying that, um, you know, to know what you don't know, that's the beginning of wisdom. Mm. It's a little bit like that, where when you realize, oh, there's a lot of stuff that I have to learn, that's the first moment, I think, in which you actually start becoming an adult, really.
2: So, whereas Margaret likes to rock the boat, and Ethan is very steady, Margaret, as a mother, was very happy, very content just to be a mother, and was no longer like doing anything outlandish, but inadvertently, her, her past comes back and just upheaves everything. And that is a lot of what Bert is exploring. That is the history that there is to learn and the adventure to go on. And it's a beautiful novel full of moments that will resonate with anybody who reads it, no matter what your background is. Uh, so highly recommend it. Uh, we're out of time, but this is a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thank
3: you so much for having me.
1: The Kerouac Project of Orlando is proud to announce the reopening of its writer's residency after a one year hiatus. The number of residencies has expanded from four to six, taking place in the house where Jack Kerouac wrote the first draft of the Dharma Bums in the College Park neighborhood of Orlando, Florida. The submission period runs until April 14th of this year. For more information about how to apply, please visit the website, kerouacproject.org Or see this week's show notes for details.
2: Welcome back to The Drunken Odyssey. Listeners, this is Samantha Nickerson coming to you from the Miami Book Fair. And I have with me today Ben Fountain. Welcome back to The Drunken Odyssey, Ben.
4: Thank you, Samantha.
2: Yes, it's a pleasure to have you. I really enjoyed reading your book, Devil Makes Three. Devil Makes Three follows Matt Amaker, a 26-year-old American who co-owns a scuba business in Haiti. Uh, When the FADH commandeers his home to use the dock for smuggling, Matt and his business partner-turned-family decide that treasure hunting is their only hope at livelihood. But there are other forces at work—corrupt police, the U.S. government, voodoo, and even girlfriends—that seem in constant disagreement with their mission.
4: That's a fair description, I think. Now, the FADH, which you mentioned, that's the Force Armee de IET, the Haitian Army at the time. And so— the Haitian army took power in September 1991 in a coup d'etat that took out the democratically elected president Jean-Bertrand Aristide. And so, you know, a very brutal military regime resulted along with an international embargo to try to force out the regime. And so that's what kills the scuba business. No more tourists, you know, nobody coming to Haiti for fun. and so. That's why Matt and his business partner, Alex, they're forced into, or they think they're forced into treasure hunting. That's what they resort to.
2: They think so. It's kind of the hubris of the young, right? Mm -hmm. And the the story is told through the points of view of four main characters, and each of them are pretty young. I think Alex might be a couple years older or the same age as Matt.
4: He's a couple of years older. That's right, like 28, 29.
2: So at the oldest, these main characters are 28 or 29. So... The four points of view that we get are Alex, his sister Misha, Shelly, and Matt. So they're all 20-somethings, either knowingly or unknowingly, influencing the political landscape of Haiti. I wondered why you chose to write the story through characters so young.
4: Yeah, that's a good question. I think these people choose you more than you choose them. Not to be precious about it, but I had, had an idea for a novel set in Haiti in this time period. Basically, it takes off from the fact that the actual leader of this military regime was a big scuba diver. And, and I'm drawn to culture clash, to incongruity, things that don't go together. And I thought, what if some random American dude, a scuba guy, was in Haiti, and because of his scuba expertise, he gets drawn into the inner circle of power, the inner circle of a very corrupt and brutal regime, and, you know, he's your basic American kind of innocent, kind of naive, not stupid, but just kind of wanting to do his own thing. So what would happen, you know, when you put these two things together? And so Matt came to me as, you know, like late 20s American. And Shelley, who you mentioned, her real name is Audrey, mm-hmm. but her cover name, she's a CIA case officer. She's a rookie case officer. And so naturally, she would be young. You know, this is her first posting. Um, Misha, who is Alex's little sister, she's a PhD student at Brown University studying the scholarship of the Black Atlantic. You know, she naturally would be pretty young. And so, and also I was pretty young when I started kicking around Haiti in the early 1990s. So I can't give you a good explanation other than that's just the way it worked out.
2: That's a perfect explanation. So you were actually in Haiti in the early 90s? Yeah, I made my— Post-coup?
4: No, no. Pre-coup, I made my first trip to Haiti in May of 1991, and um, the coup d'etat happened in September of that year. And so I got to see Haiti when Aristide was three months into his term. It was a time of tremendous hopefulness and energy in Haiti. You got the sense that Haitians felt like, finally, we can start living again. We can start rebuilding the country. We can start building our lives. And it was just a wonderful time to be there. And of course, four months later, you know, that was cut off at the knees. Mm.
2: So Aristide was loved by the people? Very much. How unfortunate how that turned out. But
4: Yes, it is.
2: Yeah. I guess Hades turned the whole Caribbean has kind of had their own, each country has had their own version of this. You know, Cuba had... Castro and the Dominican Republic had there in the 60s they Mm -hmm. had terrible political upheaval like this but to read Hades in such detail through the eyes of people young enough to still hold some innocence and some Mm -hmm. hope very powerful story a quote that stuck with me was the humiliation of forced passivity that's talking about the Haitian people during this embargo being out of work and Mm -hmm having no choice but to just sit around, you know, of course they have to try to find food and take care of their children, find medical care when that's needed, which is increasingly often, you know, malnourishment mm-hmm. and violence from the FADH and the Velocity opposing forces. Mm. But to like capture that in one sentence, uh, the humiliation of forced passivity Uh, After experiencing something like that ourselves during COVID, I think it's easy to understand. Mm -hmm. And you're nodding. Is that something that was kind of in your mind as you wrote?
4: You know, very much. I mean, all of us, most of us in our heart of hearts, we want to live lives of agency, of autonomy to the extent we can. I mean, we want to be self-determining creatures. And it's hard enough when our society is functioning reasonably well, you know, because these big structures and forces determine so much of our lives. But, but I think all of us are trying to eke out a little bit of wiggle room for autonomy to chart our own course. And so when you're living, you know, in a situation like COVID or when you're living in a situation like Haiti was from 1991 to 1994, where you're stuck you're kind of waiting for the larger situation to get resolved. And in the meantime, you know, you're in limbo. And psychologically, materially, that's a very difficult way to live.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I cannot imagine having everything lost like that, like your business and as time goes on, your family and then your house. Like, oh, yeah, goodness, these characters really went through it. Of the four main characters, Misha in my opinion, was the most educated and intellectual. And her narrative focuses on thought. It's a lot of Misha thinking about how she's thinking, Misha thinking about her thoughts, Misha analyzing her feelings about her thoughts. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I wondered, how did you consistently enter Misha's headspace to capture that voice? Like, was it editing for consistency after, or was it more like method acting?
4: You know, Samantha, Misha surprised me. And she really made me work. Initially, I was going to have her kind of coming in and out of the novel. She shows up in the novel around the Christmas holidays. She's at home. Matt, he has a huge crush. I mean, actually, he's in love with her. Mm-hmm. And she really wants nothing to do with him. And, um, and so I thought, well, she'll go back to Brown at the end of the Christmas holidays. And she'll come back and forth. But, but then I thought, well, that's no fun to have her leave. Let's have her stick around and see what happens. And then she made me work. I mean, I had to go to school on the scholarship of the Black Atlantic, which is what Misha is studying. I had to go to school on you know, medicine, and particularly medicine in Haiti, because she ends up working at a hospital and then a satellite clinic. And you know, just the challenge of somebody like me, an older white guy, an American, trying to get not just into the head but also into the nerves, the skin of a Haitian American woman in her her early 20s. It was a real challenge. And I hope I succeeded to, you know, an acceptable extent. But, you know, this is what writers do. I mean... Toil. Toil. (laughs) You know, we, we work at it. I mean, we do the basic work, you know, the quote research, all the reading and we keep our eyes and our ears open. But ultimately, it takes an act of imagination to try to get into the skin of another person. And so I worked at it. And it was a pleasure you know, learning about all these things and a challenge also to put those things to work in a hopefully successful way in the book.
2: I think it is successful. I really loved Misha as a character. I enjoyed reading her parts and I looked forward to her scenes. And I was always happy when she appeared on page. I
4: I have to say, I love her. I mean, she's a book nerd Mm -hmm. like me. And so, yes, I kind of fell for her.
2: Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, you and Jean both. Uh (laughs) Um, So on the subject of a white American male being in the headspace of a young black Haitian American woman, let's talk cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. Were you comfortable writing her initially? Did people have to... Convince you it was okay to have those imaginings?
4: Yeah, let's talk about this. I mean, there's a specific issue in the book of me trying to write somebody like Misha, but then the larger issue of a white American male, you know, middle class, you know, writing about Haiti, period. For me, it's not a simple or short answer. And so, what I'm going to do is just take you through the various things I think about when I'm thinking about this, and that is the first is across millennia. Writers have written across gender, ideology, nationality, ethnicity, time. I mean, every historical novel is an imaginative leap across time. And and I think in most cases, that's an entirely honorable way to go about the work. That's what writers do. But I hesitate to apply that, that general principle to matters dealing with blood, with suffering hardship on the scale that we're talking about when we talk about Europeans moving into the new world and what followed. Genocide on a massive scale of indigenous people. And then the kidnapping of 13 million Africans from their homes to be brought to the new world and held in bondage, often under the the most brutal circumstances one can imagine. And so I really question whether the general principle of, yes, writers not only have the right, but they have the obligation to write across their own particular circumstances. All right, you know, then there's another aspect to the thought, and that is, what else would I write about? I mean, to me, this is central to who we are and how we're living in 2023, you know, in the early 21st century. it's We have to go as deep as we can into the legacies of this history. Slavery, capitalism, plantation capitalism, globalism.
2: Literary reparations. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. All these things. And so to me, I mean, if I couldn't write about these things, I'm not sure I would write. And then there's another aspect to it, if, if you'll bear with me, and that is I was there. I mean, I was in Haiti all through those coup years. And I saw what I saw. And I heard what I heard. And so then I think, well, what if somebody like me made it into the Warsaw Ghetto in 1943, you know, a white American Protestant guy. And he sees what he sees, and he hears what he hears, and then he makes it out. And then he says, well, I don't have the right to write about it because I'm not Jewish and I'm not Polish. I would consider that to be a gross dereliction of duty. Mm -hmm. I would consider that to be a moral failing. And so ultimately, I mean, this is still very unresolved in my mind. But these are the things I think about, you know, do I have the right to write about Haiti? Do I have the right to write from the point of view of someone like Misha? And I'm not sure, but I did it anyway. I took the path of most resistance. I wrote it. And hopefully there is something worthwhile in that.
2: I believe there is for what my opinion as another white person is worth. Yeah, I think it's very important. I think any writer could learn from what you've said because we do hesitate And question ourselves constantly.
4: I think we should. I think we should always be questioning ourselves. And hopefully that will goad us, force us to work even harder Mm -hmm. to get it right.
2: I mean, ultimately, like, you're going to judge yourself more harshly than anyone else. And if you feel this moral obligation to tell a story, especially if you were there, especially if you have a firsthand account, Mm -hmm. absolutely do it. Like, somebody is going to hate you no matter what you do. But others will agree. Others will appreciate And at the end of the day, you feel like you did your duty.
4: Well, you know, ultimately, the proof or lack of it is on the page. The work either succeeds or doesn't. And that's a question of time, Mm -hmm. you know, how time and readers now and in the future judge the book. And if there's something authentic and genuine in the book, hopefully people will see that and respond to it.
2: Hopefully. We'll see. People need to buy the book and read it. Thank you. <laughs> yes. I appreciate that. Yes, I have this, and I have the audio version. The reader, the narrator in the audio version did such a good job.
4: He's wonderful. Ron Butler. Ron Butler. He, yeah, he did um, the audio version for my previous book, Beautiful Country Burn Again, which is a nonfiction book. Vietnam? It, no, it's, it's about the 2016 presidential election oh, in the U <laughs> S so <laughs> no it, it's uh yeah it was about that that crazy year in the life of America and um I'll have to read that yeah it's it's my only non-fiction book so far but he did a beautiful job with that and so I wanted him to do Devil Makes Three
2: well hopefully he continues working on your stuff I think his voice lends a lot of character I don't know he's just so good at he does the accents mm-hmm. like he does different inflection for each character and a lot of I mean like any audiobook actors have to audition and mm-hmm. Figure it out, but I think it, he's a very good match for your work.
4: I agree. I okay, agree. Good.
2: So, moving on from Misha, if she has an opposite, it's not her golden boy brother, but tough as nails, Barbie, Shelley Graver. The tension in their relationship makes for some fun scenes, and everyone's distrust of Shelley adds to that tension. Shelley's actual job title to them is fuzzy. But they suspect that she's CIA, and she's just like, can't blow my cover. My name's not Audrey. But she's just this American operative making decisions that affect Haitian citizens, hopefully for the better. But there's a lot of gray morality for Shelley. She questions her job, her actions, especially when she falls in love with Alex, and he's suffering greatly. And he, uh, he owned a factory that supported 3000 Haitians and Mm -hmm. the embargo that Shelley can't really fix or control single-handedly has shut all of that down and those people are suffering now. So she's getting even closer to the Haitian people. And she is very loved by the Haitian community. Mm -hmm. She, she makes friends, but complications stated why the decision to pair Shelley with Alex, the most charismatically positive and happy of the bunch (laughs)
4: Well, yeah, okay, so Shelley, real name Audrey O'Donnell, cover name Shelly Graver, rookie CIA case officer. She is a true believer in the American mission, which as she sees it is spreading democracy and free market capitalism across the globe. But it has to be a certain kind of democracy, a very controlled, capitalist friendly democracy. And so it's a very narrow view of the New World Order that was so in vogue in the early 1990s. So she comes to Haiti full of zeal, full of idealism, but also very realistic. I mean, she understands that CIA case officers have to get their hands dirty. I mean, they manipulate people, they run operations that um, skirt the bounds of ethics and morality, if not stepping all the way over. But she's extremely aware of the moral hazard in her job, and she takes it on willingly. She thinks, okay, this is part of my job, taking on these sins for the good of my country, for the good of the republic. And can I handle it? Yeah, I'm a badass. I can handle it. I'm tough enough. And so she kind of gets into the macho aspect of it, too. She meets Alex, who's Haitian, at a barge party the day after Christmas. A barge party is exactly what it sounds like. It's a party on a barge. That's set up with a dance floor and, you know, buffet and all these things. Anyway, they connect. It's chemistry. I mean, I think it's two charismatic individuals recognizing the life energy. It in did one seem another. like a
2: sun orbiting a sun.
4: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I didn't plan that in the book. And um, I did know that I wanted Audrey slash Shelley to get involved more centrally in these characters. But then I, I put them at the barge party together, and boom—you know—they mm-hmm. become an item right away. I mean, that first night they sleep together, and so, you know, it was a lot of fun to watch the sparks fly.
2: It was fun to read, and I knew that eventually their stories would need to intersect, and I was waiting for it, and I was so happy. I think in my notes, actually, I I wrote something like, "Finally, <laughs> <laughs> they meet Shelly. Like they're they're figuring yeah. this out. Like the story is at this central point where." Something's about to explode. Yeah. And it does. <laughs>
4: yeah. Another thing about Shelley, that is, as the situation develops and things get more and more brutal in Haiti, and she sees under under the auspices of my mission and what the CIA is doing, people are really suffering in Haiti. And she feels like she can justify it to a point, like, this is short-term suffering for long-term good. Haiti has to go through this shock therapy. But as things get more and more brutal, she starts to question that. And so, as this starts to develop in the book, I'm wondering, is she going to keep breaking bad? Or Mm -hmm. is she going to break good at some point and renounce what she's doing? And so that kept me really interested in her throughout the writing of the book. And I'm not going to tell you, or the reader, you know, or potential readers, Does she keep breaking bad or does she break good?
2: No, we don't spoil.
4: (laughs) No, but but that was was a question in my own mind as I was writing it.
2: Well, I will say on that note, this isn't a happily ever after kind of book. So you can't just assume that she breaks good. And this isn't an all doom and gloom book. So you can't assume that she breaks Mm -hmm. bad. You have to find out for yourself and actually kind of judge for yourself. Just as Shelley judges herself. So shelly encounters voodoo actually she doesn't encounter mm-hmm. it she seeks it out
4: mm-hmm.
2: in order to better understand the haitian people but i think on some level she's just a little bit of a daredevil like she mm. she's very tough very macho and brave maybe to the point of stupidity although she wear she owns it mm. and she decides to seek out the thing that people fear mm. and she ends up having like this really cool experience and like making these friends so I'm wondering it like I don't know anything about voodoo this is the most that I've ever read about voodoo in this book and it's not a central theme it appears a couple times but it's not like everything is caused by voodoo so was your time in Haiti kind of like Shelley's did you experience
4: yeah you know I sought out voodoo because pretty quickly I felt like this is central to the life of the country. Mm -hmm. It has been there from the very beginning. I mean, the roots of Haitian voodoo came over from Africa with the enslaved, the people who became, you know, Haitians. And so you can't write a book about Haiti without dealing with voodoo. And I have to say that all of the encounters with voodoo in this book— are based on personal experience except for one and that one exception is the secret society passport that audrey slash shelley is given by the voodoo priest duvet he gives her this passport you know that basically says this young woman is under my protection and nothing bad should happen to her i've never actually seen a, a secret society passport so i had to cheat i had to go to the books but Everything else about voodoo is based either directly or indirectly on personal experience. And I've probably read a dozen books mm. on voodoo over the years and made a lot of notes and have gone out of my way to try to understand it as best I can. And to me, you know, it, it's a absolutely genuine, authentic religion. It's, it's an absolutely genuine, authentic expression of our spiritual nature you know, human spiritual nature, and I think in a lot of ways it's a very positive force in Haiti. And by that I mean specifically when you go to the voodoo temples and you see the celebrations and and the ceremonies, and you see the very loving, affectionate, tender way people are with one another at these gatherings, that is a very powerful, social, cohesive force And in the midst of the perpetual unraveling of Haitian society, this is one place where people can go and get tenderness and affection and support and nurturing. And so I think in a lot of ways, voodoo is a big part of what's holding Haiti together.
2: So back to Matt and Alex and their search for treasure. They come across this Spanish fleet ship, was treasure always something that you wanted to write about? Or was it Haiti first, which inspired you? Or was that kind of like a chicken and egg conundrum?
4: Well, always Haiti first. You know, one of the things I wanted to do with this book is among other things, write a ripping yarn, you know, write a story where stuff happens, interesting stuff, intense stuff. And there, there are a lot of sunken ships around Haiti's coast. I mean, we're talking about 500 years of shipping and the Spanish treasure fleets, you know, going back and forth across the Caribbean. And so people are always looking for treasure around Haiti. And also the fact that the general in charge of the military regime, the actual general, he was a treasure hunter. He said, I'm searching for treasure. If I find it, I'm going to use it for the benefit of Haiti. I'm skeptical about that. You really but, can
2: believe him or you can't. Right, but... right, right,
4: right. But I thought... This feels like it has a lot of potential, you know, this search for treasure in terms of narrative drive, but also the resonance of it. I mean, we're talking about colonialization and plunder on a massive scale, and so all this treasure, all this gold, all these precious items, they have blood on them, Mm -hmm. they have misery on them, and so... Our guys go in search of these gold and artifacts, and they're quite aware of the legacy of these material objects. I mean, they aren't just material objects. They stand for so much. And Mm -hmm. so,
2: and it's not lost on them that the treasure hunter is a white American.
4: Looting the cultural patrimony, basically. Yeah, they do hook up with a rich American, and he's a collector and a treasure hunter, and he's got the resources to finance them. And so in a way, they're making a deal with the devil, Mm -hmm. and they know it.
2: Yes, the devil and his assistant, Davis, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Davis from Fort Pierce, Florida. You captured his voice so accurately. Did you spend a lot of time like at the cove in Fort Pierce watching like grungy <laughs> old men exist? How did you do that?
4: <laughs> well, I mean, these are my relatives. I mean, I grew up in eastern North Carolina and, you know, these are my people. And uh, Davis came pretty naturally to me. I mean, he's kind of a grizzled, tough old guy, gets up every day and does his work. And his work happens to be treasure hunting. He's always looking for the big score. He He's kind of like a blue-collar gambler. Mm-hmm. That's what treasure hunting is at the level he's doing it, the mom-and-pop level.
2: He's doing like the grunt work of, mm-hmm. yeah, he is. He really is. And he's good at it. He has like a sixth sense for it. Mm-hmm. Um,
4: Yeah, as the book shows.
2: I'm sorry I possibly insulted your relatives by hating Davis so much. (laughs) No, no,
4: I love them. But, you know, I mean, this is the world I grew up in, you know, working class people, people who worked with their hands and use their bodies. And, you know, they have a certain view of life.
2: Thank you so much for coming on, Ben, again. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed this conversation.
4: Thank you, Samantha. It was a pleasure for me.
1: That is the show for this week. I would like to thank Samantha Nickerson, Celeste Ng, Ben Fountain, Lisa Pally, and Miami Book Fair. Don't forget to check out the Drunken Odyssey throughout the week for all kinds of great written content, including heartbreaking comic book reviews by Drew Barth, mind-bending playlists by Stephen McClurg, and reviews of Off the Beaten Path Cinematic Gold by your own curator of Schlock, Jeff Schuster. Until next time, put your ass in the chair, keep attacking those keys, and don't swallow the worm.
0: Dear listeners, writers, and fellow Odysseans, send your questions, observations, complaints, manifestos, transcriptions of Turkish opera, and whatever else you got to thedrunkenodyssey at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Drunken Odyssey with John King, a podcast about the writing life. This is your announcer, Lauren Butler.